the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. My guest today is not a poet. My guest today is a nonfiction writer, and she's been writing for several years the exciting accounts of her adventures at the Bone Room. You might wonder what the Bone Room is. It's a natural history store, and they actually do sell bones. And it's in Berkeley, where it's been for 25 years. For many of those years, Diana has been chronicling her adventures there, which has led me, as a listener to these chapters of this upcoming book, to learn a lot about natural history and also the joys of the adventures on Solano Avenue in Berkeley. Welcome to Poet to Poet, Diana Mansfield. Thank you, Nina. It's always wonderful to be with you. The same. And I'm so glad that I'm giving our listeners the opportunity to hear your book, which I've been enjoying over the years as you've been writing these wonderful chapters. <laughs> Many years, a good 20 years I've been working on this, but now I'm going to knuckle down and be able to really work on it because things are changing and I'm not going to be in the bone room quite as much anymore. So my girls are taking over. So more time for reflection, more, more time, time for writing. For writing. Yay. More time for polishing. That's mm-hmm. great. So what are you going to read to us today? Well, I'm going to read a bit of the start of the book when I first met Ron, because we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of his having passed away. So I thought this would be an appropriate thing to read. We met on the day of the earthquake. There I was on my lunch break, carrying my tray of broccoli beef from the counter of the crispy fry to an outside table when I became aware of a man following me, a big man with rainbow suspenders. I found a table in the sun and began to eat. The man sidled up and asked if he could share my table. I took a breath to answer and inhaled some broccoli. The man seemed to take my choking as a yes. He sat down and readied his fork, then eyed me with concern. Are you all right? I nodded and communicated to him in a strangled voice that he was to guard my plate while I went in search of water. When I returned, he was already halfway through with his plate of duck and fried rice. I regarded him critically. He was, oh, in his forties, maybe, with a little gray in his hair and mustache. He wore big, gold-rimmed glasses and had nice gray-green eyes. He was not dressed like a businessman. He wore a black shirt and those clownish, rainbow-striped suspenders. Clownish anywhere else, but here in the Bay Area, rainbows could mean gay. So, hmm. He was not my type, anyway. Too large, too masculine. Also, his head was too big. But what the heck, a little lunchtime conversation couldn't hurt. Eat here often, I asked. I did, he said. Back when the crispy fry was over there, he pointed to the other end of the building. I used to own a business here. In fact, my rodent room used to be where the crispy fry is now. Your rodent room? I owned still own, actually, a place called the East Bay Vivarium. Oh, the snake place. I perked up considerably. I remembered the Vivarium, a reptile pet shop where the big snakes moved sluggishly in their hot cages and little geckos clung to the glass walls of their terrariums. And there had been a six-foot iguana that roamed freely through the store and was petted by customers. There was always a chatter of rats and crickets and a humid, sawdusty smell to the air. I'd liked it. I'd been there twice, but I'd never seen this guy there. Is the vivarium still around? It's in Oakland now, just off the Cypress exit, but I'm in the process of selling it. I still have a hundred snakes I'm keeping there, but I'm no longer running the business. So what do you do now? I sell bones. Bones? 
I own a shop called The Bone Room. I sell animal parts, skulls, articulated skeletons, horns, turtle shells. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a little wooden box. I've started selling these. A friend of mine makes them to put bones in as a gift. Delightedly, he showed me how the top slid open, and there were tiny rib bones inside. He handed the box to me so I could appreciate the smoothness of the polished wood. Well, that sounds pretty neat, I said, handing back the box. I don't know of any place where bones are sold, but I bet there's a reason for that. Who buys animal bones? Are you really making a living that way? What made you open a bone store? He finished his duck and pushed his plate aside, sat back. Well, after running the vivarium for 20 years, I felt I knew enough of what there is to know about reptiles. I wanted to learn something new. Bones are fascinating. You look at a skull, you think about its architecture, its artistic possibilities, its function in the living creature. I'm learning about osteology now. Are you a biologist, zoologist? I have a Ph.D. in chemistry. I worked with Von Braun and the boys developing rocket fuels back in the 60s. So does that make you a rocket scientist? He nodded. Now, I'm a sucker for men with big brains. I can resist men with Ferraris too obvious and jocks with massive muscles. Go away. But show me a man who knows his Buckminster Fullerene and I'll stumble all over myself trying to get his attention. So what if this guy insisted on wearing silly suspenders? He was apparently not gay and he apparently had enough IQ to wear whatever he wanted. But it was time for me to get back to the office. Well, hey, I said, producing my business card. If your woodworker friend would like some free exotic woods, teak, mahogany, have him give me a call. I've got ships coming in from Brazil, and for the inbound LCL stuff, they use scrap mahogany as dunnage. The pieces are all scarred and warped, but he could get some small stuff to use for boxes, I imagine. The stevedores just throw it out. Your friend could go down there and get some free wood if he doesn't mind going through the trash. I felt like this was a nice oblique gambit offering him wood for his friend. He studied my card. Sales manager, he noted, nodding. Actually, I'm more like the acting regional manager right now, and I'd better get back to the office. I gathered my purse, my jacket, my half-drunk drink. I'm Ron Cobble, he said, enunciating clearly. We shook hands, and I left. He hadn't given me his card. Maybe he didn't have one. I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. So did you ever see him again? I did. And he actually gave me his business card. And we arranged to meet for a date. Oh. So I'd like to read about that. Please do. Friday evening, dressed in a filmy blouse and a nice black skirt, I careened around an area in Oakland trying to find the bone room. He had given me directions to the place, but I hadn't exactly listened. I knew where Claremont Avenue was, didn't I? I figured I could find the place, but Claremont is a weird street. It slants off in a peculiar direction and intersects with streets that should go nowhere near. It comes to a stop at a busy intersection and doesn't continue on the other side. And the address on the card put the shop right where a freeway ran across the street. It made no sense. When I finally parked in the general vicinity and walked, I found the store. I had passed it four or five times. It was so tiny and in such an unlikely spot, I hadn't believed it was really there. But then again, how had I missed it? Two human skeletons, one real and one plastic, hung in the window. The shop was 20 feet from the freeway entrance in a residential neighborhood. On one side of the store was a pest control company and on the other a beauty parlor. Cars whizzed by at 40 miles an hour. Whenever they were stopped by the red light on the corner, the occupants of the car gaped over at the bone room window. The shop was about the size of my living room, dingy, cramped, with animal skulls hanging on the walls and lined up on the floor. Ron sat beaming behind a desk, a full peacock tail spraying out on the wall behind him. 
There was one customer, a woman in a paint-spattered sweatshirt, who was combing through a pile of bone-filled bags on one side of the counter. Don't you have any cat ankle bones, she asked fretfully. Ron stood and looked through the bags himself, pulled out one bag and presented it to her. Oh, she said. She emptied the bag on a clear space next to an animal skull the size of an ice chest and carefully picked through the match-sized bones. How do you like it? Ron asked me, stretching his arms out expansively. From where he sat, he could reach halfway across the shop. I said I liked it. What great stuff. I love everything in here, Ron said. It's hard for me to sell things sometimes. I just want to keep them here so I can look at them. He reached behind his chair and nabbed something off the shelf and handed me a small gray flattened ball. What do you think that is? It was lightweight, irregularly shaped. It had no smell. Fungus, I ventured. He shook his head. I held it up to my ear and shook it. No sound. Nothing rattling around inside. I gave up. It's a hairball from a cow, he said happily. My heart melted. What woman wouldn't be charmed by this eccentric, overgrown boy? I handed the hairball back to him. He traded it for an S-shaped bone. One end was bulbous. The other was like the end of a crochet hook. What's that? He quizzed me. It's a bone. But what kind of bone? I stared at it. A misshapen rib? He shook his head. I'll give you a clue. It's what man got left out of. What? It's a penis bone from a raccoon. Get out of here. It is. The polite Latin word is baculum, meaning rod. Ron put the woman's cat ankle bone purchase in a Ziploc bag and made change. The woman left, closing the door behind her. Bells attached to the door's handle banged as she left, and Ron got up and locked the door, closing time, and squeezed behind the desk again. Have a look around while I close up, he said, and went to work with the adding machine. There was plenty to occupy me, the place with a cross between a hobby shop and a museum. I glanced at the plastic bags the woman had been looking through. They were labeled mink teeth, porcupine claws, python ribs, chicken vertebrae, turtle scoots. There were bags of shells and vases full of feathers and a jar of foot-long African porcupine quills. My best seller, Ron looked up to say. The skulls on the wall were gracefully horned African antelopes. Heavy cow skulls were balanced against the floorboards. Plexiglass cases held whole skeletons, a snake, a rat, a pigeon. In a glass display case, there were more delicate skulls. Birds, mink, muskrat, a series of more expensive things like a lion skull, a capybara skull, and to the back of the case, looking away from the customer, a line of human skulls, fascinatingly individual, even from behind. In the counter display was a collection of jewelry, bones, and even entire small skulls dangled from French wires. I make most of the jewelry, Ron said. He slid open a drawer and showed me a rat skull pendant and a pair of earrings made from mink mandibles. I took my jewelry to a gallery in Berkeley where they sell work by local artisans, and I showed it to a lady I know there. She said, very nice, but it's not art yet. But I like it, Ron laughed. I found it strange to think of this man with his Ph.D., Dr. Cobble, spending his time drilling holes in bones and fumbling with findings, but he seems to enjoy it. And what are our lives for, if not to do what we enjoy, if we can get away with it? Apparently, Ron was getting away with doing what he wanted to do. We went for dinner to his favorite Burmese restaurant in Oakland's Chinatown. While we ate lemon, chicken, and garlic noodles, we discussed the problem of location. I thought that was a good spot for the bone room. Easy access, plenty of parking, and the rent is cheap, but people seem to have trouble finding me. I had trouble finding you. So I'm looking for a new store. What I'd really like is a place with a basement so I could keep my snakes on the premises. And I'd need a location with walk-by traffic. I found a couple of good spots, but as soon as the landlord hears that I'm going to have snakes and rodents, I can imagine. 
being the weirdest retailer in town must have its drawbacks. But meanwhile, where I am, it's so quiet, I can run the place by myself, and I can close for lunch if I want. I can lock the door and take a nap, and I get a lot of reading done, too. You can't do that if you have a lot of walk-by. Ron probably wasn't making much money, I thought, but who needs money if you can read and take a nap? What an interesting guy, I thought. And a couple of months later, we were pretty much a couple. So that's how it all began. That is. Mm -hmm. And then for 25 years, you and Ron ran the Bone Room in Berkeley. I found the store on Solano Avenue, and this was perfect. Solano was a wonderful street. We certainly had plenty of walk-by traffic, which became less important as we went on, since the website became more of a vehicle for finding new customers. And then the rest of the book is the adventures of dealing with the people that come in and out of the store and the people that come in through the website. And mm-hmm. Yep, plenty of eccentric customers, so there were always lots of good stories. Well, we look forward to hearing more stories here on Poet to Poet. Thank you, Diana Mansfield. Oh, thank you, Nina. studio today, poet Dima Shahabi. She's written a book called 13 Departures from the Moon and another book. And what is that called, Dima? It's Diaspo Renga, which is a collaborative book in Alternating Renga by Marilyn Hacker and myself. And what exactly is Renga? Renga is a haiku-like Japanese form of linked verse. And many poets throughout the centuries have engaged in this linked verse. And it's a lovely way to collaborate amongst poets. And, you know, all of us poets, we tend to work alone in our studio. But this provided me with a great audience with Marilyn and vice versa. And then you've also done an anthology of poetry. Tell us about that. Yes, I am the co-editor with Beau Beausoleil of Al Mutanabi Street Starts Here, which is an anthology that's been collated over many years that commemorates or rather gives tribute to the bombing of Al Mutanabi Street. It's Iraq's oldest book-selling and publishing historic street. And it was bombed and many writers came together to commemorate what it means for Iraq's people. Well, we're eager to hear some of your poetry, Dima. Which book are you going to begin with? I'll start with a few poems from 13 Departures from the Moon, and then I'll read a little bit from Diasporinga. So this first poem is called Light in the Orchard, and really it's about lately I've been thinking a lot about the process of home and what home really signifies and how searching for home is in itself a process. It's a form of resistance against degradation and dystopia. And in your case, your home was Palestine, is that right? That's correct, yes, exactly. And so it's particularly poignant to me to be searching for home, always in California, no matter where I am, in exile or, or at home. And so despite the noise and pollution and dystopia, sometimes our writing, as the poet Mahmoud Darwish says, becomes the other shape of the homeland. So writing as the other shape of the homeland. And this one is called Light in the Orchard. The black crows don't rise frequently from yellow fields and sunset anymore, though the sentiment does. You see the earth as a trammeled garment beneath your feet, and the blue, teeth-marked cavity of water and sky circling around, blue on copper, blue-green, green-auburn, And although you wish to repent and say, no country is worth fighting for, 
The rain light will suddenly riffle through the breeze until finally you spot the swans bristling on the pond, blood-colored clouds flaring in their black eyes, and then away one last time to the orange grove where birds plight in your stall. You've been listening to Dima Shahabi reading her original work. This next poem is set against, again, a disappearing and vanishing landscape. Its entry point is a remnant of children. And the only constant in this vanishing world is the moon itself, which it provides both luminosity, hope, memory, and terror, despair. This poem is the title poem for the book. It's called 13 Departures from the Moon. Whiter than memory, skeins of children in the pasture. Oh, the full moon rose over us, tiniest petal, a smile in their eyes. He hears the anthem of moon-cadenced hills banging at the window pane. You're the name of what's in me of sleep. So dream. Upon your return, you will descend through inland scapes shorn of doorsteps and welcome mats, past towers of time in yarrow-colored soil. Misshapen moonshawl on her sloped shoulders, Hush, she says, to quiet the chattering angel of tides. Night of angel collisions at the foot of her bed, the smell of sugar and hair-ripped skin, the bride from Nablus writing her last letter. The moon grips her eyes as she looks up from the veranda where thistles grow. Fields packed ever so loosely by the sea. Ya amar anawiyak, O moon, you and I, Companions since childhood, we loved our moon, you and I. The dead here hang in midair until the moon breathes out. Girls on swings rising higher in the air, then knee-deep in the mud. One body splashed in the honeyed light of used-to-be playgrounds. Treacherous moon, fire in the eye of the sniper who yawns after his bullets dye the air. Her voice belts your eyes that are bound for every grief. There are no boundaries between you and the moon. Outside Nablus, a smokeless moon brushing the head of a padlocked mosque. All these years, you and I, bereft of our bodies, we saw how the moon tethered our grave while the Dijins extended their 3,000 hands upward, upward. Pretend the jasmine between your fingers is the key to a sovereign house where only lovers of moon reside. You referred there to the jinns. Is that what I learned about as genies That's from correct. the Thousand and One Nights? That's absolutely correct. In Islamic culture, of course, we all come in threes. The human form, the angel form, and the jinn form. Oh, I did That's kind of an yeah, Islamic culture or Islamic belief. So the jinns are figure very prominently in stories and old folk tales. So each human has these three dimensions? It's not that each human has three dimensions, but rather that these are things that we don't see in the realm of the unseen, that there are angels and jinns, and humans are the only visible matter. So the mm -hmm. jinns and the angels exist, but not a jinn and an angel for each person. That's correct.
every poet and every writer has their own illusions and it's sometimes difficult to keep up with all of that it's, yes. it's a whole study let's get back to the 13 journeys from the moon mm-hmm. is there anything special about 13 simply that well my parents loved the number 13 and although in the west it's kind of a bad luck number but actually in the east it's considered to be a lovely and good number and so i turned that around i sort of subverted the number 13 because it was we were departing 13 times from our landscapes from the moon from the constant beauty of what we wanted in from the earth so the 13 departures is about again 13 times moving away from your landscape and from your loves and from people and there's a lot of fracturing in the poem because memory is often fractured and so when people leave their land or are being occupied or degraded they have to sort of remember what gives them constancy in their journey towards exile or becoming a refugee so the moon the moon is the constant you look up you always find it despite where you are whether you're in a tent whether you're looking at, like i do up at the hills of northern california wherever we are in the diaspora the moon is always there and this next poem that you wanted to read us i will read gazelle number four here and this is about the way I often hear friends and family in conversation and people in the empire, because we do live in an empire, and how we inadvertently become mouth speaks for the empire without even knowing. And so this was a critical poem about how we inadvertently become this mouth speaks without knowing. Before you begin, could mm-hmm. you also tell us a little bit about the form that it's written in? Yes, a gazal consists of semi-autonomous couplets which are grounded by rhyme and refrain. It's an ancient pre-Islamic poem, which is derived from the Arabic Qasida, which just means poem, lyric poem. And it's a really fun form to write because of the rhyme and refrain, and you're able to leap between, you know, you can go from the political to the satirical to making it a praise poem to a love poem. So it's a really fun form to write. It's one of my favorites. So that's what the ghazal is. Ghazal 4. How sullen we've become in the belly of the empire. Nobody wrestles time for afternoon tea and honey in the empire. What trumpets behind the fence, orange-bellied birds in magnolia blossoms, skittery squirrels, it's spring in the sunny empire. On MLK Day, the children pack tuna sandwiches and apples for the tenth city homeless who are going hungry in the empire. Foggy morning in Oakland, the scent of deep fish frying in the newspaper says... Koreans fly home to avoid expensive dentistry in the empire. Body scanners, fingerprints, cameras on street corners, airports have become dangerous places for Sunnis in the empire. Friends pat me on the back. Enjoy what you have. Distances between people have nothing to do with money in the empire. Once we rushed to the north end for succulent Italian. Now, even the Irish neighborhoods serve up minestrone in the empire. Who'd clip a foreign tongue and chop off a last name? Acculturation means men with erased accents listen with vigor to Limbaugh's litany in the empire. She hears May Nusser's song to Gaza, reads Hacker's translations of Venus Kurigata, and deposes a desire to give it up totally in the empire. You've been listening to Dima Shahabi reading her original poems. And for your closing poem? For the closing poem, yes. We'll end with a small poem that is a conversation with my husband about the meaning of roots, and it's called Opal. 
Here is the light loosening through the leaves. It makes its way past a morning that resembles in its sever of birdsong and scent of old wood smoke. Every place and no place we know. You point at these roots resting beneath the enormous Aleppo pine and say they are the ancient calligraphy aging on moss corridors. You say roots are leaping marketplaces sprawling in a thousand directions and those wrinkles emanating endlessly from my forehead. And what of roots we find in small hands beneath big feet succumbing to an earth that leans inward and opens to a sky withdrawn from stars. Here we yellow when we think of our dead and we grow large with rootlessness although our blossoming is born. And I wonder what kind of hunger is it are bathing in the midst of all this light? What a lovely poem. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dima Shahabi. These have been beautiful poems, and I've really appreciated hearing them and sharing them with KPFA listeners. Thank you so much again. A oh, pleasure. I'm going to be reading to you from my series of poems called California missions before the Fandangos and Zorro, there was this. Based on a play performed by schoolchildren at the Peralta House, San Leandro, California, 2007. On a visit to the historic Peralta House in San Leandro, California, I view museum artifacts of the first people of this land. Right before my eyes, the visiting schoolchildren of today perform a play donning the costumes of Ohlone Indians, mission priests, and Presidio soldiers. Before my eyes, the past emerges and speaks to me through these bright, new, young voices. The Spanish Soldier A ration of chocolate tucked into my backpack we brought up from Mexico for a drink around the campfire before or after a bloody massacre or a long march of scratching bramble, mud, and stinging bugs. The Mission Ohlone Girl Walking and pushing the grinding stone and pulling weeds, then chopping and peeling to make the meals from dawn to dusk, remembering that I once used to play, chasing playmates and butterflies, hearing the rooster's chorus, even in my dreams. The Liberator There is always one who is many, gathering to plan an escape back to freedom. Freedom of the hunt, the gathering of reeds for baskets and berries for lunch, the songs, the familiar ceremonies, healings and prayers of free people, not slaves to work and more work. A strange language in unpleasant ways, free to shout and dance the joy of mornings, moons marking our moments. We leave tonight, and if they come after us, they will meet traps and tricks and deadly arrows. The school field trip is over. The children end their play, shed the costumes, running off to the present, back to their school uniforms in the 21st century. They know this genocide is the legacy of the land. 
but their energy for games and lunch and the present moment sends them racing for the ever-waiting yellow school bus that leaves like childhood to school. You've just heard me, Nina Serrano, reading from my series called California Missions. Before the Fandangos and Zorro, there was this. We hope you've enjoyed the program, and thank you so much for listening, and we'll be with you again soon. Have a very pleasant day. This has been Nina Sverno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. When Bonnie Raitt says Peter has lived a life most of us could only dream of, she's talking about Peter Coyote and his new autobiography, The Rain Man's Third Cure, An Irregular Education. Brilliantly written, his memoir reaches from Peter Coyote's early years on the East Coast and Greenwich Village through his wild digger years in San Francisco to his deep friendship with Gary Snyder. His becoming a Zen priest, acting in 140 films, and, well... Peter will describe it his own way. Wednesday, October 14th at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way in Berkeley. There's wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit. Gaetano Kazuo Maida will host. Advanced tickets, brownpapertickets.com and our beloved indie bookshops. Full info on kpfa.org for October 14th. Peter Coyote. KPFA in Berkeley, 94.1. KPFB in Berkeley at 89.3. KFCF in Fresno, 